0: This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends
1: and the Leads Art Week. Hello and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode of Marketing Trends features an interview with John Regan, CMO of Seismic. John is a really smart marketer and entrepreneur with a very diverse and interesting background. Prior to Seismic, he was a partner with venture capital firm F Prime Capital, and John also served as CEO and co-founder of Guidewire Software, which he led from inception to over $150 million in revenue. In this interview, John talks all about how to master sales enablement. He also talks about effective CMO leadership, his favorite campaign, and much more. Enjoy.
2: Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Here is your host, Ian Faison.
3: Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And on the other side of the country, John, how's it going? It's going great, actually. Beautiful day out here in Boston, so can't complain. That is great. You know, the early summer days might get pretty hot there in a little bit, but for now, pretty good. Okay, so today we are going to talk about sales enablement. Is enablement even a word? We might get into that. And all things John's background. So first, how'd you get into marketing? Yeah,
0: so it's funny. Uh, One of my first... Jobs. It was in a startup software company, and we had we were ten people soaking wet. And uh, I was sent over to the UK because we we got a customer in the UK. Then all of a sudden, my boss was saying to me, "Hey, you know, we have this other customer interested in our stuff in the UK, but we have no marketing material, et cetera. Can you kind of write stuff up at night and drive over and talk to them?" So literally. That was my first foray into r- really product marketing is the entry, which I came in. And uh, it started there with just on the ground, in the field, sales slash marketing working together. So
3: for those of our listeners who might not know, can you share a little bit more about Seismic making your role? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the CMO of Seismic.
0: Seismic is what's called a sales enablement platform. That's what is commonly referred to. Uh sales enablement is not a well-known word in the in sort of the usage or lexicon of marketers and salespeople yet. It's rapidly growing, and that's one of the exciting parts. So let me start first with a sort of definition in our viewpoint, and then also a little bit about you know, how it's growing and why it's an exciting space. So first off is uh, sales enablement. The way we will like to think about it is that, you know, marketing often has all this information and analytics that they get when it's sort of pre-lead, they have marketing automation systems. They personalize content. They send it to people. They they have analytics on what have they opened, what have they clicked, and they can adjust and manage based on that. Then once it becomes lead, then how? Does the rest of the sales cycles go? Which marketing content to use? How are the salespeople using it? How are the salespeople spreading the message of your company out? How are those messages being effective? Are they resonating, et cetera? A lot of that's a big black hole because it's in the hands of bull. You know, it's harder to track people. And so what Seismic as a sales enablement platform do is we help give sort of that content intelligence around all the material which is being used, how it's being used, what can be most effective, suggesting what's most effective and recommending it for certain scenarios, personalizing that content and providing the analytics so you continuously improve. That's what we do and that's what a sales enablement platform is. So then just bridging quickly over to why it's an exciting space, besides that there's a lot of interest out there, Over the last couple of years, there's been a 118% increase in job titles. And this is, you know, if you just go on LinkedIn that have sales enablement just over the last few years. So it's a rapidly growing space. And then right now there are 7,000 job wrecks out there on LinkedIn for sales enablement titles. So it tells you like the space is really heating up in terms of the
3: importance to companies yeah that's really exciting. That's crazy. Wow, seven thousand recs yeah i mean i I think it's it, it's interesting when we were at serious decisions and we were talking to Forrester about this about like how does sales enablement fit into the marketing stack like is sales enablement a marketing function? Is it a comms function? Is it a you know corporate marketing? Is it a sales ops? What are, what are you seeing? Yeah, it's a great question. Most times,
0: uh, sales enablement either fits, you know, this is the common place. So most of the time, it's put within either as a separate function, separate from sales ops, because often sales ops, it tends to be, you know, a bit of deal desk, a bit of handling compensation and making sure people are paid correctly, et cetera. It's not as much about, training and enabling the sales force to be more effective. And so sales enablement is an area that often is separate, that encompasses pieces of sales training, maybe some pieces of sales operations. And marketing, it tends not to report to marketing. More times than not, it reports to sales. But a lot of the things they do are related to marketing in terms of all that great material that marketing's put out and training, you know, cause all of that comes from product marketing and marketing itself. How does that effectively get distributed and used by the field? And, you know, it's been a common frustration by marketing people for, you know, decades that there's a feeling that sales says they can't find the material that's useful. So they create their own. And and there's lots of studies that say, you know, 80 to 85% of material created by marketing isn't used. And then on the other side, the 53% of material used by sales is actually created by sales. So you say they're spending a lot of time creating special material instead of using some things that are commonly out there. So those pieces all come together to say, hey, sales enablement is one of the pieces that brings marketing and sales together.
3: Yeah, I think it's it's one of the areas that's most emblematic of kind of the the sales marketing divide. I mean, even the fact that it might live in multiple different places within the organization of whose job it is is, is clearly, you know, a symptom of of kind of where this fits in. So how do you view that relationship between sales and marketing uh, in terms of kind of sales enablement and how do you approach it as like internally as, as CMO Seismic?
0: Yeah, so we have a sales enablement function here and of course we use our own platform and that relationship with sales and marketing is so critical and one of the pieces we really put a lot of scrutiny on with the help of Seismic of course is what are we creating how is it being used? Who is using it? Why? And making sure the adoption of anything new we create has usage behind it. It's not just, hey, we'll create this great piece of material and we raise the, you raise the flag, victory flag and say, oh, we created this great, piece of material. And it's fantastic. No, we don't raise the victory flag now until we really fully understand it's being used by sales. It's probably goes through slightly more iterations because we get more feedback. We get to know a little bit of which people are using it, which people are not. And then we can ask them questions like we notice you're using it a lot, but we notice you're not. Why, Why is that? And we try to understand some of those gaps better So the marketing team can make much more effective material for the field and also helps us control some of the material that, you know, you've been in sales before, you know, sits on people's desktops or whatever in their own folders. And they're using things from three years ago that are out of date and off message and have different pictures and graphics and and probably don't even state correctly what the product does anymore. So... By controlling that, we also can archive all those things, so we ensure that the sales team is not only using the most up to date, but also the most effective. So it's a it's a really critical thing.
3: Yeah, that is one of those. Once something is in print, it is out of your control forever. As a marketer, you're like, you know that that to your point that 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 asset is sitting. You know, you print fifty brochures and for each sales rep or something like that. And then two years later, they're still using like, that's the old copy. That's the old logo. That's, yeah, that's funny.
0: Yeah. That happens all the time, you know? So it's, it's one of the key things that, um, you know, we like to do. In fact, our customers, one of the, some customers do still used to print books and, and we've held customers where they eliminated, uh, I, I think the numbers, you know, it varies by numbers, but some of them, were on the order of 20,000 hours and 100,000 documents used to be printed per quarter, and now all that's gone. Like, literally, it's down to, you know, sure, a few hundred, uh, but a radical change in the delivery. And because of seismic on top of not only less printing, but – The bigger thing is they have analytics to say, what's working? What are their customers actually
3: looking at? And then they can hone in on those material better. So now for the big question, the question that all the listeners are curious about. Is enablement actually a word? So it's funny you ask that.
0: Enablement is not a word in any of the major dictionaries. And we actually have a campaign going on. And it's, it's supported by lots of partners, 25 partners, including competitors of Seismic are part of this program. And basically, we're raising signatures in multiple dictionaries to, uh, to make it a real word. So enablement, which is a real profession. And then, like I said earlier, there's 7,000 job wrecks out there. And I think the number's up to 9,000 people with sales enablement in their title can actually have a real word for their title. So we have a, a website, uh, which I can plug at uh, later, but it has... uh it go right It's realproblemrealword.com. That website, you'll see a video which is up over 15,000 views of the video, and uh, you can sign a petition to make enablement a real word. So please, I encourage everybody to do that. It'll help the sales enablement profession have a real, real word in their title. That's hilarious. What do the analysts think about it? Oh, the analysts are really excited. In fact, at the Cirrus Decision Summit, uh, one of the analysts mentioned it, actually promoted it to go to the booth in their actual talk. And, you know, that's unusual for them. We had to talk to them and say, look, we're not pitching our own product. This is an industry campaign. And once they finally understood that, they were willing to do that, because obviously they don't want to buy us toward one product or another. But yeah, the analysts are really excited about the campaign, and they've been very helpful Sharing it socially. There's a society called the Sales Enablement Society, which I know, uh, you know, last my knowledge, has over five thousand members, and the Sales Enablement Society has been promoting it uh, within their constituents. So it's it's exciting, and you know, once we get a certain number of signatures, we'll
3: formally submit it. But we're we're kind of waiting for a certain threshold first. That's so fun. And congrats. That's great. I love stuff like that. What a fun thing. I, w- I always think of the military because there's so many words in the military that aren't actual words that we just ended up using, like um, orientate. That's like a big one in the army that like you orientate yourself to a map or something like that. People say it all the time, but it's not an actual word, nor it should just be orient. But uh, yeah, that's that's pretty great. I'm on board. I'm, I'm on board with the uh, enablement should be a word. Although, is what's the difference between just enable and enablement? Uh,
0: well, it would be hard to be a title enable. So, you know, sales enable, you know, that obviously that's a verb. And so you need enablement, which would not be a verb. Now, I'm not an expert of, uh, I think enablement would be a noun if it actually existed, so.
3: Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I, I don't know a single thing about diction, uh, so I have no I have no dog in this fight, but I'm 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 on board. I want to switch gears to an article that you wrote, which I thought was really interesting about uh why being a CMO is better than being a CEO. You were a CEO for a long time and you've been a CMO for a while. Why'd you write the article and and what what's your thesis here for why being a CMO is better than a CEO?
0: Yeah. So uh, yeah. So I was a CEO for almost 10 years at a company named Godwire. I, I helped found the company. It's publicly traded uh, GWRE on the New York Stock Exchange. Both jobs are challenging. You know, There's no easy job in this world. And I would say those jobs are also challenging. The thing I would say is that what's fun about being a CMO is, I call it getting your hands dirty. So you can actually when you're a CEO, you have all these people who report to you, but most of the time what they do is, is when you ask them, hey, can I get involved, they sort of put up their hands and say, we got this. You know, we'll, we'll report back to you on the results. So it's often hard to get involved in things because, you know, you have hopefully a very capable people who are doing it and you don't want to micromanage. So it's, it's hard to get involved. Well, as a CMO, you can get your hands much dirtier. You can get much closer involved, both because marketing organizations tend to be smaller compared to, let's say, sales or development or even customer success in most companies are much bigger than the marketing team. So you can get closely involved. And I say kind of roll up your sleeves and get dirty. So I like that about being a CMO. The second part about being a CMO that's interesting is a lot of the decisions that a CEO makes, it's hard to put analytics behind it. And the best way to think about it is you think about a CEO of certainly a tech company, a lot of their decisions around, oh, well, you know, uh, should I raise money? Should I not? Should I add this board member to the board? Should I not? You can't really put analytics behind decisions like that. While as a CMO, you can really use analytics because your goal is to help embrace customers, embrace prospects, educate them, et cetera. And you can put analytics behind what's working, what's not working, both from from the marketing organization and the sales organization, of course. So uh, I, I like that part about it. And I guess the third part I like is, as a CEO, it's kind of an isolated job. It's hard to work with The team, because often they report to you, so there's always a little bit of a distance. While, you know, when you're a CMO, you have a lot of peers, whether it be, you know, Andy Bergen, who I work with closely on the CS side, or John McCauley, who I work closely, he's our CFO, or Dave Myron, who's our product leader, you know. And obviously in sales at, at Kalman, we work closely together, so you get people to work with closely. So that's something a CEO doesn't necessarily get, so.
3: Were there things that you took from being a CEO to transition to a CMO that were some of those kind of operational things or relationship building or team building things that that you kind of leverage in your day to day
0: uh yeah i think I think by being a cmo a CEO uh, one of the things I really learned about is to try to First, try not to micromatch, number one. Uh, really try to let go of things. And I think when you become a CEO, especially through that time period, you know, when I started, we were nobody, and, you know, and, and only a couple of other founders with, with me. And when I left, we were... 700 people and, you know, 170 million, I think, in revenue. So the point is, is that over that time period, you learn to sort of let things go and you learn to let people make the best decisions and and then second is you learn to sort of, if there's a direction you want to go, there are ways to talk to people without being heavy handed and without saying, I sort of order you to do things. And I think over those 10 years, I really learned a lot about trying to let go of things and trying to kind of promote people in the sense of letting them kind of shine. And I think I've really translated that to, to the CMO function.
3: What about being the hot, heavily, you know, growing startup CMO versus kind of the public company CEO, you know, both have their own kind of different, different unique challenges, but were were there certain things that when you took over as CMO, knowing what it means to be in the spotlight, knowing what your CEO is going to look for that you think helped you make that jump? Yeah, I think first you have a certain confidence
0: because you've already seen a lot of sort of different scenarios and know more people in the business to ask questions. And I think that confidence gives you the ability to, it sounds weird, but ask dumb questions. Like, yeah. I think when I was CEO, I was often afraid to ask questions because I didn't want to look like I didn't know it. <laughs> well, here, you know, I think, you know, having been through that kind of growth period and learning how much you didn't know and now realizing how much you still don't know, <laughs> you're much more willing to ask questions and say, hey, you know, I, and, and don't even worry if, oh, that sounds like a stupid question. You learn over time that there's Every question is a good question because if you ask the question, it's normally going to promote better decision making, maybe by you, but maybe by the person you ask the question of, because maybe they didn't ever ask themselves that question. I think it's promoted better decisions.
3: Yeah. What's the, I forget the phrase, like coaching up or something like that, where, you know, you're, uh, I think that's what it's called, right? Where it's like you're helping, you know, your CEO make decisions in the same way that you would, you know, help your, the people on your team make decisions. Um, that ability to, what's, it, is it called like coaching up leading up? What is it called? It might be coaching
0: up. That seems to be the the phrase I've heard, but.
3: Yeah, that's what it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that is one of those unique things that, that you have that I don't think a lot of other CMOs have, but I think that the takeaways from that are pretty salient because, you being able to be like, hey, I I sat in the role. I kind of know how it is. I, I know what I was looking for from my CMO. Were there things that you looked for from your CMO that maybe were unrealistic when at the time that looking back on it now, you're like, I probably shouldn't have been. Uh, or I, I was too hard on him or too soft on him or whatever it was.
0: Uh, I definitely think so.
3: I think there's there's a lot of times
0: I was too hard on people or try to make things happen too fast. I think you have, you learn over time that you can push all you want, but the reality is, is that customers and prospects make decisions in certain timeframes. And often you pushing too hard doesn't help that scenario. Like it doesn't make anyone feel comfortable. So, and that goes true for in job functions, like trying to push too hard. An organization can only do so many things well at one time. And you have to just accept at times that certain things aren't going to be done either as well as you would like, or not done at all. The only thing, the best thing you can do is try to help them trade off those decisions. And that's what I've I think I've gotten better at is sitting with people and saying, hey, you know, let's talk about your list of priorities and what's on there. And we talk about them and we say, hey, are you getting at a chance to really work on, you know, maybe they come up with their eighth, ninth, tenth, or maybe something that's not on their list. And they'll say, yeah, no, I really haven't had time to do that. Well, you know, what do you think of those first ones? And, you know, can we rejiggle the board? And instead you become sort of a partner of reprioritizing rather than just pounding the table saying,
3: you have to get it all done. You know, it's a different uh, relationship. I like that, especially, you know, we just had a CMO round table in here. One of the big things that Chandar, the CMO of Koopa, was saying, he was like, you got your top three plays that you're going to run. And in your first 90 days, just focus on those three. You know, there's no sixth, seventh and eighth, right? As you progress in the role, you can have those other things, but just like nail those first, you know, three plays. And I think it's it's a great point that, you no, know, checking in and just saying like, are, are you even gonna have time to to kind of do these things? Because I think the risk, a lot of times, is that someone can't handle the amount of stuff, so well they can't get promoted. Well, if you're the CMO, <laughs> you know, there's not really a lot of other places to go other than there, uh, unless you're gonna unless you're gonna fire them. So you have to figure out like. Are we being realistic with our expectations? And your point about pushing prospects and customers and things like that—I think it, it is the same for leaders. Where at a certain point, like you know, if you're just having your sales team or marketing team or whatever try to beat people over the head, it's not going to end up well, anyway. Yeah,
0: exactly. I, I think it's always better to find ways again to prioritize. Like I, I, I think it's all about priorities, and that goes for prospecting. Like instead of pounding their table on three and trying to get them across the line, maybe they're just not ready yet. And it's better to focus maybe on the other 20 that are in their pipeline that you could get a lot closer to close if you prioritize better and and didn't spend so much time on those three. Vice versa, they're spending too much time on the next 20 and aren't spending enough time in the top three and those threes aren't getting across the line. I mean, it's different scenarios and different paths, but in marketing, I think that's especially true because there's so many tactics you can use. Uh, you know, obviously nurture campaigns, event campaigns, you know, specific direct mail campaigns, gifting, you know, which I guess is direct mail, but you know, all sorts of digital campaigns, whether you do, you know, our, doing something like ad roll or retargeting or you just, you know, putting LinkedIn ads, you know, there's so many tactics and you can just spread yourselves too thin rather than, you know, focusing on ones and really
3: analyzing what's being effective and what isn't. What is one of your favorite campaigns that you've ever done? Favorite that I've ever
0: done? That's a good question. I have to say, you know, this real problem, real word campaign does stand out like I it has been exciting it's gotten our partners to work closer with us it's gotten our competitors to work closer with us it's gotten the analysts to talk about it and you don't know no, this is seismic front and center in the campaign no but we're getting the credit for it and It's really pretty exciting because we really do feel like we're providing something to the industry but hopefully in turn you know we're We are the leader in sales enablement platforms, but it's great that, you know, we get further recognition by making the campaign of, of a real, real problem, real word, such a, such a highlight. So it's probably, probably one of the favorite I've,
3: I've done. What about a campaign that was one of the best learning experiences for you? Huh? Well,
0: I'll tell you one that isn't ours, which is, uh, you know, it's actually funny. It's a documentary right now. And I don't know if you saw it, the Fire Festival. Have you heard about this? This was about two years ago. And so the interesting part about it is, you know, you have to have truth in marketing. Like, and people would say, oh, well, you know, at one level, it was a great campaign because obviously they signed a lot of people up to go, but you know, they were bankrupt before they started. Like they, before they even the event was going to happen, they were already having to sell things that they didn't have just to make payroll. Like the whole campaign made no sense because they were just losing money every day that they operated. And and had they had the event, they would have lost even more money. So So the point is, is that you know it, it reminded me that in everything you do in every campaign, it has to be rooted on real facts because if it 's going to be successful, the facts will come out about what it is you 're pitching and how it works and what is the time frame and and I think uh, it 's very important to do that because it 's so important to create a relationship with your prospects and customers there that is based on truth, and if you run a campaign. And they become customers because of it. <laughs> you know what you said in the campaign better better have been true.
3: Can I say that it's a little bit cheating to use Fire Festival? Uh, come on, give me something. I want something like like worst ad that you paid for that was the worst ROI. Something like that. But I I appreciate the thought. There's great great points on the on the Fire Festival, but yeah, that's okay
0: okay. That's a fair point well i 'll say this you know we, uh, and this gets back to sales and marketing alignment i 'd say one of, we did an event, and it was a one of our own kind of branded events, like we decided to run an event in a city i 'll leave the city nameless. and uh, and we did have a discussion with someone within sales, but it was more like a sales rep who wanted to grow their territory in that city, and so we decided to have an event and Branded the event, et cetera. But basically, only that sales rep was on board. So you could imagine when we're trying to recruit for the event and trying to get people to go to the event, you know, marketing can only do so much. We can send emails all we want and invites all we want. But if it's a if it's a morning event, you know, only people within drivable distance are going to go. You're going to need to reach out. You're going to need to remind them at the last second. So you need a kind of sales and marketing collaboration. And I'd say the disaster was basically only this one sales rep was on board. None of the other sales reps in the area, they were busy, some were on vacation, some were other. And basically we had an event, which, you know, okay, we didn't lose that much money because it was one hotel and a breakfast and all these other things. But I think we had three people attend. And those were the only people who actually attended, keep in mind more signed up, but it just showed you that it doesn't matter what marketing you do, you have to be aligned with the sales team around where it is we're going, what it is we're doing, how is the event going to work, who's going to be responsible, for which parts of it. And, and furthermore, do we have enough prospects in that area who could actually attend? And on retrospect, in that area, we had a very small database of actual prospects who could attend.
3: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with it. It is funny. I mean, I think that we we all have these events in our careers that- Events I feel like always toe the line between like colossal su- success and colossal failure. Usually they end up somewhere in the middle, but there's always the opportunity for both. Such as such as the nature, I guess they're a little more bit more expensive. So yeah,
0: nice. yeah, you're right. There's a balance there, but we, we've we've done generally pretty well on events. So that one was a bit of an anomaly. So
3: it is what it is. All right. Let's get into the lightning round. These questions are fast and easy. Just like marketing automation with Pardot, you can go to pardot.com slash podcast to learn more about B2B marketing with the world's number one CRM we love Pardot. You will to check it out. Lightning round style, fast and easy questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm revved up. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun?
0: Uh, an app called Strava. I'm a big cyclist. Strava is like a social app for cyclists. And uh, basically, you can see other people's rides and you can compete on certain stretches of road and see who's the fastest. It's it's actually fun for cyclists.
3: We've actually had a couple other guests that have said Strava on, on our other shows. So uh, favorite vacation spot? God, there's so many great vacation spots. I'll just my last one I went
0: to, which was uh, Positano on the Amalfi Coast. Uh, Went with my family last year, my wife and two kids, and it was just spectacular. It is. There's a reason people go there. It's incredible. Favorite book or podcast
3: that you've read or listened to recently? I've
0: become a big fan of the Freakonomics podcast. I listen to it almost every day on my way to work. You know, sometimes I'll only listen 10 minutes in and decide, that particular episode isn't as interesting, but, you know, I think there's around 300 of them and I'm probably up to a hundred of them I've listened to. So still a ways to go, but I like that podcast.
3: What ad campaign have you seen recently or maybe all the time that you're envious of? I have to admit that de
0: ad with the uh, most, you know,
3: yeah, interesting man in the world. Man in
0: the world, you know, it just sticks with you every time. I, I can't tell you the number of parties I've gone to, and somehow that comes up. Even though we're not drinking Dos you know, it comes up. And if we are drinking Dos it definitely comes up, you know. It's just so funny how that's become part of the lexicon, so. What are you most
3: excited about for the future of marketing?
0: I'll have to go with um, ABM. I, I really... Because maybe I spent so much time sort of on the sales side and uh, out there with prospects and customers, I think understanding your prospects and customers so much better and being able to target them very specifically with the industry they're in, their particular interests, their what side interests that might parallel to you, I think it it has such potential and such potential in so many areas because often people think ABM and they think, "Oh, demand base and retargeting, or something like that and and there 's a, a a company called Alice, which is working on you know gifting, but it 's based on your interest. And it's not gifting like seismic products, but it's gifting, Hey, maybe I'm a wine connoisseur and it figures that out and sells, sends me a great ball of wine. And it's memorable enough to me that I say, Oh, I'll take the call. You know, that it makes me remember that seismic sent me this great gift, even though it maybe doesn't have seismic on it. So that's an example of different ABM targeting. And I think with the amount of data that now is out there and you can get to, uh, you can target so much better, in everything that I'm, I'm a big believer in ABM. We do a lot of it here. Uh, I'm a big fan of John Miller, of Engageo, great guy, and really learn a lot from him, so ABM would be my number one.
3: What is your best advice for a first time CMO?
0: You know, my best advice for a first time CMO is really sit down with your head of sales frequently sit down and go through the priority list again and again and again. And you may think you went over it with that person, you know, a few weeks ago, but you know, sales sales does kind of change with what's the latest you know, few opportunities they went through. And obviously there's always the joke that you, know, you talk to a salesperson and they're only as good as their latest win or loss. But I think most great Sales leaders are, are far better than their latest win or loss, and they spend. You know, it's a lot easier to sit with them and really understand. Hey, what? What is it? How are their priorities changing, and making sure you're lined up with that? That would be my best advice.
3: What question do you never get asked that I did not ask you today that you wish you were asked more often? That's a good question.
0: I guess I would say. If there was something you'd cut in your marketing plan and reallocate to something else, what would that be? Ooh, what would you cut?
3: That's a great answer.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, in, in my case, I I'd say we do have certain events that we do and everyone feels like we have to do, but you know, the ROI of those events really isn't there. And yet, there's so much inertia behind doing those events. Oh, we we have to be there. We have to be seen. I, I think in my case I'd say let's I would just cut them and do something else with the money. But
3: what would you do with the money? Do some podcasts?
0: Uh podcasts are an interesting one. I uh, you know, I'll bring up Alice again. I'm a big believer in gifting. I actually think gifting works. So I would love to do more gifting, actually.
3: Yeah, we were just talking to uh uh, CMO of trip actions, Megan, she's awesome. And they gift a uh, little succulents so that people have them at their desks. And I just thought that was great. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. John, this has been absolutely awesome. Thanks so much for, for coming on the show. Uh, any other final stuff to, uh, to shout out everyone should check out seismic for sure. Absolutely.
0: No, Ian, the only thing I just remind everybody on is this real problem, real word would really appreciate you just, uh, you know, if you go to the real real com, and there's a petition, no, we're not going to send you all sorts of marketing material. It's just a petition to sign up for to help make it enablement of real
3: word. So we'd really appreciate your help with that. Awesome. We'll love it. Thanks so much. And uh, we'll talk soon. Okay, great. Thanks, Ian. Thanks
2: for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes.
1: To helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.